One day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. Amen. I had just finished a long weekend of teaching at a conference uh, in Western Canada. And I'd finished up a a discipleship series, and one of the teachings at the end of the day was just how to understand and utilize your spiritual gifts. In my mind, it had been amazing material. And as I'd finished, I just closed, and there was a young woman came directly forward, and she looked up at me. She was barely five feet tall. And so with me standing up here and her down there, I thought this is going to be a little awkward. She looked at me and she said, your chest isn't valid. I said, I bet you scored really high on the gift of encouragement, didn't you? I said, tell me why my gift isn't, or my test isn't valid. She said, because it says I have a gift of faith. I do not have a gift of faith. I said, okay. Here's what a gift of faith looks like. Summarize it in three short sentences. And I said, that is a gift of faith. Do you have it or not? And she said, that's how I look at life, but I don't live that way. I don't have a gift of faith. And I thought, ooh, this is a tough one. Do I be kind to her and make her feel better? Or do I be tough with her and think this may be corrective and set the course for the rest of the destiny of her life? Being kind is never my first option, as you have picked up. So I thought, I swallowed hard and I said, look, had I sat near you and your husband for lunch yesterday, said, as I listened to you, you were talking about experiencing the, the great gifts of God upon you. 
He's, uh, he's done well, young lawyer, climbing the ladder very quickly. He's a corporate lawyer. You have that ideal teaching job. You've just bought your second home. It's an upgrade from the first. You're in your 20s. You, you're experiencing the gift of God on your life. But what you call the blessing of God on your life is actually creating such a comfortable life that you don't need faith. And she said, what can we do? And I said, here's my best option. I think you should reverse tithe. She goes, what's that? And I said, that's where you live on 10% and give away 90. She goes, what's your next best option? I said, I don't think there's a good one for you. I think this is probably the best for you. And I remember her looking at me, and all of a sudden, it's like she grew a foot and a half. She set her jaw, clenched her fist, and she said, I'll find another way. And I looked at her and I said, I'll pray you don't. Because you'll find a better way, which is an easier way. And in so doing, you may well waste the best of God's gift that He's given to you for your lifetime. Well, she didn't thank me as she walked away. I was a bit disappointed. But I decided to follow up on them, kept in contact with them over the years. I remember stopping a flight in their city so I could have dinner with them. And they said, we can't wait to meet you. And I'm thinking, it would be interesting to see the follow-up since. As we met, uh, their house was somewhat chaotic. had three small children. And as we listened to the story unfold, it was quite the story. This great life they had came to a stop because they, they were unable to have children. And she said, I remembered that gift of faith. And I thought, God, if you'll let me have a child, I will use this gift of faith with other people for the rest of my life. And she said, it was just natural to trust God. Thanks for showing me what I had. And they had a miracle child. But I noticed there were three there. And I said, well, what happened? Did you, like, find the other two? Or what happened? And they said, she goes, we had a, a second miracle pregnancy and had twins. And she said, you know what I do with my life now? She said, you notice this house is not very large. And I said, I, I noticed. And she said, we decided to adjust our life dramatically. Because there are lots of people in our community who aren't able to have families as well. God is using my gift of faith. with now started out to be dozens and it's now well into the hundreds of other people in our situation, and my gift of faith is a ministry to people who feel hopeless. I thought, a comfortable life versus taking a risk. There's an interesting choice to be made many times in life. What I had planned to do today was to do case study sermon where we compared two or three different cases. As I put it together, I figured out, I'm not good at that. Each one is sort of a a mini sermon that it it lasts way too long, and I thought you you would walk out, so we're just going to stick with this one passage that has just been read. Here's the summary of this entire passage. If you take your faith, put together the challenge you're facing, it equals to a risk. In human experience, it will be a risk. It's This passage tells us that it's time to take that risk and to go after what you need. But it takes your 
risk. As you look at this passage and passages like it, you discover that when you're facing your greatest adversity, whatever that is, don't quit too soon. Because although the answer is not there, the answer is it's not there yet. I have listened to so many of you in these last few weeks, and you tell me your story, and, I, and I'm waiting, and I just step in and say, you haven't seen it yet. That's why it's called faith. That's why it's called faith. You haven't seen it yet. So when you're facing your adversity, don't give up. We have these great phrases, even slogans. It's always too soon to quit. Quitters never win. Winners never quit. Your parents use them on you. Your coaches have used them on you. Sometimes well-intentioned people, rather than listening to you, they just throw these at you. There's even one that says the final chapter of your story has not been written yet. They all say the same thing. It's just too soon to quit. It is too soon. As we look at this passage in Luke 5 that has just been read for us, that even when it looks impossible, there's one word, persist. There is, a, there is one challenge, though, with persisting. In preparation for this, I interviewed about 25 of you and said, when you read passages like uh, Jesus' parable of the persistent widow, I actually brought up this passage about finding a way. I said, when you think of persist, what pops into your mind? Give me a brief narrative. Here's what I discovered. For most of us, the human nature part of this is when we think of persist, it's you just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. There's no flair, no insight, no pausing to look at anything different. You just think, I'll just keep doing this. I'll just keep doing this. The other thing is, we seem to do it in our own strength. When I listened to you, there was so much about persisting was the human experience of just doing it in your own strength. That's not what this passage is about. This passage, let's look at the narrative. Sometimes when we read these kind of stories in, in the Bible, we spiritualize them. These were like superhuman people. No, no, no. These are regular people. Let's look at the story. You've got a paralyzed man with four friends. Now, you, you picture this however you want to. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail. I, I was, as I pictured this story, I thought, it'd be interesting if Jesus was doing this story in Western Australia. He's got four blokes who've got a friend they want to see healed. Or if you prefer, four blokes went to Judea. However you want to set up the story, you set it up in your mind. You have a fully grown, paralyzed man being carried some distance to a meeting where Jesus is going to be, and the word is, he's healing people. So they brought him. They get there, the place is too crowded, they can't even get in. So what do they do? Well, they, uh, they have some imagination and some ingenuity. They decide, here's what we're going to do. We're going to climb up on the roof. Now, picture this again. You've got a fully grown, paralyzed man being carried by four friends. And their best option is, let's carry him up on a roof? I was just thinking, if I was the paralyzed man, and four of you agreed to help me, 
I'm not sure your first option would be, let's carry him up on the roof. Not too much laughter. I'm a little sensitive here. Be careful. It wouldn't be your first option, would it? Let's carry full-size man up on the roof. Then, let's, let's rip part of the roof off. Again, if we play out the scenario and you tried it here, I'm sure you would hear from the elders about the hole in the roof. You would, I promise. And after they tear the roof off, here Luke actually defines it as tiles. When Mark gives the account, it just says they took the roof off. They ripped a hole in it. Sounds a bit more like it might have been a thatched roof. Here it's identified for us as tile. Imagine the people down below. The roof is both coming off and part of it's falling in. And then they lower him down. Again, great story. But imagine lowering a full-sized adult male with some ropes down over other people where it's already too crowded. You can imagine they're going, hope that bloke doesn't fall on us. Um, there's all sorts of things could go wrong in this story. But Jesus loved this story because it's about the faith of friends who take a risk. Because it's always, always too soon to quit. When you're balancing the power of God in your personal action, several words come to mind. It's about persistence, not giving up. It is about ingenuity. Don't just do the same thing that you've always done. Take a pause. Step back and go, is there something that we haven't thought of yet? Then you take the risk. That's your part of taking this extreme action that you're not used to taking. And that's where you partner with God to see what could happen. Notice what Jesus says in verse 17. Or what Luke says in verse 17. That when Jesus was here... It says an interesting statement for us. It says, The power of the Lord was present for Jesus to heal those who were sick. We often skip over those kinds of things. What it says is there are moments in life where something unique can really happen. Capture those moments and it will often define your destiny for the rest of your days. Be cautious and analyze them. And you will miss that moment for the rest of your days. There are times and seasons where God is doing something. And you know it. You sense it. The problem is, it's never quite as clear as we'd like it to be. Some of you wish there was a sign flashing. It's the moment. It's the moment. Don't miss it. Jesus is here. He's ready. Don't miss it. It's never that clear. But if your faith only stays running in your mind, and you don't take the risk, you know that very often you will miss it. Luke wanted to make sure. Luke was the scientist, remember? He was the physician. He wanted to make sure you knew that there was a moment, and this was one of those. Capture it, and it will define your life. Miss it because you analyze it. You will do just that. You'll miss the great moment. Notice also what this text tells us. It talks about the imagination and the risk of the friends. But in verse 20, Jesus simply said to this man, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Just before that it says, When Jesus saw the faith of the friends. 
Sometimes you can't do it in your own strength. Sometimes you need those friends with you and for you. And sometimes the great things that God does is because of the friends you have. It was January 06. Diana and I had just come back from a couple of weeks in Florida. We were uh, trying to build up some strength and do some other things to get some projects done before I jumped into the term at uni. And as we uh, just got back, the next day I was having lunch with uh, my team. There were five of us having lunch, having some good Japanese. And in the middle of having lunch, I thought, this, uh, this isn't settling well. I've got this thing going on in my chest. Uh, it's like I had way too much wasabi. Only it seemed lots worse than that. And I got up and decided to stretch. Um, we have a, a restroom facility in our suite. I went in there and thought, what, what's going on here? This is not going away. And I just stepped out and I said, call the ambulance. Now, I'm having a heart attack. Just felt like a truck was running over my chest. Not a good feeling. I'd prefer too much wasabi. Well, the, uh, the ambulance started to come, and I thought, I, classes are just getting ready to meet. It was the exact time when students were filing in, and I thought, I, I, I don't want to cause a crisis here. I'll walk out to the parking lot so the ambulance doesn't have to come into the... Don't do that. If you're having a heart attack, sit down. I even considered driving myself, but I thought, yeah, that's probably not safe for other people. But I did walk out to the parking lot. And they go, what are you doing? I didn't want to make it difficult for those people. It's difficult for you. Lay down. So I had to. The, the uh, hospital was only one kilometer away. They got me there. And uh, the hospital that was nearby did not have a, uh, a cardiac care unit. And so they just did a few quick things, and they were going to put me back in the ambulance and take me to a cardiac care unit. Four friends showed up, two female, two male. One was a, one of my staff members, another was an administrator that worked in the building, and two of my associates. And they simply said to the ambulance drivers, before you take him, we want to pray for him. They gathered around me. One of my associates put his hand right here on me. And as they prayed, there was this extreme heat sensation started here and went clear across, just like it felt like the truck was running across me earlier. They threw him in the ambulance, took off. We were going down the, uh, the road. I was laying there thinking, I actually feel pretty good. I had the hands behind my head. I was whistling. And I was thinking, I, I think I could walk there. They unloaded me, took me in, ran all the tests. Nothing showed up. The report said, no blockage. No damage. When the earlier reports said uh, evidence of a significant heart attack. I love those people. My own situation was I didn't have the strength and the faith that day. I was thinking of Diana. I was thinking, yeah, I'm going to get yelled at. I should have been doing more exercise. and <laughs> All sorts of things are running through my mind. Four friends showed up. Their faith and their prayers. I'm with you. I love that story. May you find those friends who will take those risks with you and for you. Now, Jesus does an interesting thing in verses 23 and 24. He said, okay, which is easier? You don't like that I said your sins are forgiven. You don't like that. Is it easier for me to say, get up and walk? 
By the way, just to, to notice, this is the fourth time in this series that it's shown up in the text where Jesus tells somebody to get up. Some of you didn't know Jesus ever said that. Once he was kind, twice he was just direct, once he was very direct. Get up. It's a pattern he has. This one, I like it. Get up and go home. I love those direct commands of Jesus. And then he asks the question, which is easier for you? If you're going to trust him, which is easier for you? This is your question. For everyone here, this is your question. Which is easier for him? To forgive your sins or to heal you? For many of us in this room, we've already made the assumption he has and is forgiving our sins and giving us a new life. But it's a little trust, it's a little harder to have that faith and trust that he can also heal our bodies. So Jesus poses the question to them okay, which is easier? You pick. Because he's literally saying to them, I can do both. Let me do both. Let me do both. It's about your faith and your willingness to risk. Let's talk about risks. Let's talk about them because it's, it's, a, it's an abstract concept for so many of us. And risks look so different for different people. For some of you, you're absolute risk takers. It's just how you view the world and how you see your life and how you see yourself in this world. Some of you have huge risk aversion. Risk? No, thank you. I'm doing fine on my own. And God and I have negotiated that we've created a theology together that he's never going to ask me to do anything that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, that's only clear in your mind. Trust me. He's not bought into this yet. So let's talk about risks because they do look so different. For some of you, it's as simple as looking and making eye contact with somebody that you'd rather not make eye contact with. Walking down the street to look up versus looking down. To look up and send a greeting. But what some of us have done is we just prefer to play it safe. And we have actually taken our worldview and baptized it and called it Christian. If you wonder if you're one of those, you probably are. There's quite a bit of it here. I run into it every place. But there's quite a bit of it here. Because of the cultural diversity, so many of us have taken our view of the world and simply baptized it and said, this is Christian. No, it's just what you're comfortable with. And so far, God hasn't challenged it that dramatically yet. Also realize that this, the kingdom of God is at hand, and as Jesus said, there are times and seasons it's time to capture them. So let's look at what some risks look like for us. Number one, for lack of a better term, random acts of kindness. Not, not high on the risk scale, but it causes some effort for you. Something where you have to put out, something where you have to do more than what you feel safe with. And you do those random acts of kindness sometimes for children, sometimes for older adults. Sometimes you do them for people in your community, sometimes for people of the church. Sometimes you do these for the people who are the closest to you and sometimes the people that you don't hardly know at all. It's an entry-level risk. Random acts of kindness. The second one, 
is the types of conversation you have with people. People that you're less comfortable with. Most of us are comfortable with a particular type of person. Mostly they look, act, and smell a bit like us. Some of us go for the smell. We're not quite like the dogs who go up and they always welcome each other with a sniff. But we're very uncomfortable with people who don't smell like us. They eat different food. They have different smells of perfume, hair products, etc. Or sometimes in the winter like this when it rains, they've been living on the street. They don't smell as fresh as we do. And that makes us a bit uncomfortable. Those kinds of conversations. I started a long time ago just because I wanted to figure out what it was like for other people. I would find somebody sitting on a bench, waiting for a bus, sitting in a park, sitting someplace, and I would just go sit beside them. And in a little bit, I would just say, tell me your story. People go, what do you mean? I said, everybody has a story. Tell me your story. Well, what do you want to know? What do you want to tell me? Just tell me your story. It's amazing conversations. I have them often with people on a plane. Instead of asking a question, just go, tell me your story. And sometimes they get nervous and sometimes they go, no one's ever wanted to hear my story before. I do. Tell me your story. But this doesn't work for everyone. I have a student who has uh, 20 years in the New York City Police Department. He retired. He decided he was going to go to seminary. He goes, Martin, this one doesn't work for me. Now, John's a bit taller than I am, black man, 20 years in the New York City Police Department. He walks up to people and he says, tell me your story. He said, so Martin, I don't get good responses from this. <clears throat> yeah, I, I can see that, John. Um, but that one may not work for you. You may have to try a different approach. It's a risk. Having conversations that you're not as comfortable with. The next one is as simple as prayer. Praying for people and with people. There's a big difference. Instead of saying to someone, I'm going to pray for you, pause and pray with them. I have found with people outside the church who have nothing to do with faith. One of the best things I've ever done is after a conversation, I say, would it be okay if I pray with you right now? They sometimes look like, do you have two heads or one? I said, no, I, I am from this planet. I just would like to pray with you. And what comes out next is so not like what we say in church but very connecting them to the heart of God. It's often this amazing time. We have a, a bit of an infomercial here. Wednesday night, just a time to pray for each other, for what God is doing here. It's a prayer time. Just before 9-11, I was asked by our university if I would help with a parade in New York City. New York City loves parades. They have parades about everything. We have a mermaid parade. We have um, a Puerto Rican parade. We, we have an Irish parade. We have uh, uh, a gay parade. Because we have good baseball teams, we have parades after we've won the World Series. We have parades for everything. Well, they have an Easter parade, which is interesting in a place where faith is as low as it is in New York City. But they have an Easter parade, long tradition. So the uni said to me, why don't you do something to get students involved in this? I thought, what are we going to do? March? Uh, wear cool outfits? 
Have the women wear habits and the men wear monk things? What are we going to do? So I said, we got permission and we set up a prayer tent. And they were amazed by this. A prayer tent at the Easter parade. And all it says is, want prayer? Question mark. We were surprised how many people stopped. As a matter of fact, at one point, I left the, the students who were praying and I went and checked. There was a lineup. We heard it was two blocks long. It was almost three. I stood where I could listen. And people come to go, there's always lines in New York City. People stand in lines for tickets. They stand in lines for everything. People would say, why are you in line? They're, they're praying up there. Praying what? Praying for you. They'd go back and get in line. Oddest thing ever. We got to do it two years. And then they wouldn't let us do it anymore because it hurt the flow of people. Traffic flow. Too many people wanted prayer. Oddest thing. Those are some risks worth taking. The kind of conversations, the random acts of kindness, the way you speak to people, with people, about God. It's rather simple but incredibly profound. Let's move ahead. It's also about not just those sorts of things. But it's also about things like how you serve. It's about your ministry. It's about a short-term mission and taking risks. Some of you remember when you were new to faith and you said to yourself, I can't wait till I know enough where I can teach. I can lead a study. I can lead other people to faith. You said that. How much more do you need to know? You don't need to know much more. It's time to take the risk. And you know that. It's time to quit playing it safe. For some of you, this short-term mission, it's the thing for you. It's the next step. It's a natural. But for some of you, take short-term off. It's time to do mission. You have this profession. You have this ability. You have unique ability. You've created a great life for yourself here. But the need at some place else is so much more dramatic. It's time to take the risk. It's time. The next one's our finances. It's amazing how much we attribute to God has blessed our life financially, and then it's amazing how much we keep control of that. It's actually not funny, is it? It's time to be givers. It, it just is. It's time for Subi Church to be known as a place that has a spirit of generosity. You have that. Now let's take it up a couple notches. You're known as giving people. Let's move it up a few more notches and include finances for those who have less, for the needs of the world, for each other. The final one is simply your life purpose. What am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do with what I have been given? So many of us choose a career, choose a life pattern, often because of parental influence. And sometimes parental influence is a great thing, and sometimes it's a limitation because parents want to feel good about how their family is doing. Some, for some of you, this is not about you taking the risk. This is about this morning. It's about your parents taking the risk to release you from the pressure they've put on you. 
Yeah, I'll take the letters that are going to come. It's okay. Because it's the kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. That's what some risks look like. So let's wrap it up. You take your faith. Put this challenge that's in front of you. What's left? Your risk. Your willingness, your ability, your desire to take this risk. We've given you his story of the paralytic with the four friends who took the risk. I'm going to take a moment to tell you our story because so many of you have asked. Actually, about a hundred. I've kept track. And this last week I had five people say to me, you've mentioned that you're a lecturer at uni. I can't see you doing that. Like I'm not smart enough or something? I don't know. I don't fit the profile. I don't know what that means. Apparently I don't dress well enough. I'm not sure. A number of you said, what, what do you actually do? And I said, well, that's an interesting question because for 20 years our children have asked the same thing. Seriously, regular intervals our children say, Dad, people ask all the time, what does your dad do? And they said, we don't know what to say. I said, okay, you want the short version or the long version? They'll go, we'll start with the short one. So I give them the short version and they stop me in between and go, yeah, that's not making sense. I said, you want the long version? I don't think that would help. Okay, so they just make up something. My, my youngest son had the favorite. He said, I tell people that you go around and you do nice things for people, and then they give you money. <laughs> and I said, in New York, that sounds a little bit like the mafia. He <laughs> goes, oh, I never thought of that one. Yeah, let's revise this just a little. Let me tell you part of the story. I got married when I was very young, too young. I was 18, but I married an older woman. She was 19. We had one child and one on the way. We thought we were going to farm our whole lives. I was an innovative young farmer. I'd learned some things from my father. He died when I was 15. But I learned some things from him. My dad just had this phrase. He was an inventor, designer, and he used to say, Martin, if we already know how to do things one way, why would we do it that way again? There's always a better way to do everything. Experiment. Risk. Most of his risks didn't pay off, but a few of them did. I learned from that. And I thought, I said to Diana, let's just farm, let's hit this hard. By uh, 32 to 35, I'm pretty sure we'll, we'll, have, we'll be millionaires, we can retire. Well, we had one child and one on the way. Someone invited us to church. We didn't know much about faith at all. And on the same Sunday, we responded to an invitation and came to faith in Christ on the same Sunday. We knew within just a short time that we had some sort of calling on our life. And so I said to Diana, I know I told you we could retire by 35. I think now we're shooting more at like 85. And instead of doing it as millionaires, yeah, that's not going to happen. Second child was born. We moved thousand kilometers away to start our educational journey. Started uni with two children, seminary three, graduate studies after that with four. Thank God I quit my education. Who knows how many children we might have had. It's true. But over the years, which included 10 years as a pastor, I'm starting my 24th year as a uni lecturer. Um, they're very kind to me. They release me to do all sorts of other things including dropping things to come here for a couple months. 
But from the 20s to the 30s and the 40s and now the 50s, people have said to us so many times, why you? Why you? Why has God chosen to use you guys the way he has? And I think part of that question is when we look at you, we're going, it doesn't make sense to us. And even people that we started out together with, who've now stopped somewhere along the line and played it safe, they ask, why you? We said, part of it's always the hand of God and his providence. But the other part is, we decided a long time ago to be those people who always said yes to God who didn't play it safe, who are willing to take the risks. And so one of the things that's fun for us is just doing what we do for fun. We've been able to see well over 10,000 people to come to Christ. And before we're done, we're asking God if it can't be 50 or 100,000. That's part of our story. Diana's story is somewhat different. I'm by nature a risk taker. She's by nature not at all. Her point was, Martin had a call to ministry. She said, I don't. I have a call to be obedient to God. But one of the things that I so love about her is that she's never placed limitations on God. She's not a risk taker by nature. The way she grew up caused traumatic insecurities. And I've even said to her, you're willing to drop all sorts of things and go with me around the world. How do you do that? And she said, God's never let us down. And when I'm with you, I feel safe. I love that. What you see now with people like Graham and Tracy and us are simple people who started where you start and simply said yes to God. And who took one risk and then another and then another. We've given you his story I've told you our story. Now it's time for your story. In the kingdom of God, you notice the stories of the people that are reported or the people who took the risks. It's time for your story to be one of those. And for some of you, this is your day. We're going to go into our final worship time. In the midst of this, I'm just going to come out and stop and say... Today's your day. For some of you, today's your day to not play it safe any longer and take that risk. I'm going to give you a little time to think about it. At some point during the next few moments, we're just going to ask you to stand where you are. And you're going to say to God, I'm taking the risks. I'm not playing it safe. I'm not calculating. I'm just going to take those risks. Pray with me, please. God, we love the stories of other people who've risked in the kingdom of God and seen what happened. Some of us have never seen ourselves as one of those yet. Today, there's just a few that you want to say to them, this is your day, mate. It's really time and you know it. I've been kind enough. It's time to risk it. So as we wrap up our time of worship and quiet reflection and then celebration, Walk us through this time. And in the right moment, make it so clear to those that you want to move to the next level to say yes to the risk. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stay seated. 
just do some reflection and worship and ask God, what's here for you today? <laughs>